Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Today, we're not talking about victories. We're not talking about winning. We're mourning. Today, it's a song of mourning, and not for a 3-10 and 10 season, not for the trades of Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper, and not for the fact that this was a playoff team only two years ago, and now arguably, they're the worst team in the NFL. No, this is worse than all of that, because it looks like right now, the Oakland Raiders, Oakland Raiders, have three weeks left in their existence. Three more weeks, and only one game left in Oakland, December 24th against the Broncos. So why am I saying that? Why the change? Well, the city of Oakland filed a lawsuit against the Raiders yesterday, quote, to recover damages resulting from the Raiders' illegal move to Las Vegas, including lost revenue money the Oakland taxpayers invested in the Raiders and other costs. That's a quote. Look, what I'm not going to do is get into the details of antitrust law, the city's assertion that the team violated the NFL's own policy on moving. But after reading that press release, it is safe to say the city does not seem fired up about extending its lease with the Raiders for another year. Not when the city attorney is being quoted as saying that the defendants, quote, brazenly violated federal antitrust law and the league's own policies when they boycotted Oakland as a host city. The release goes on to say, and I quote, for years, the NFL defendants, a carefully limited number of football clubs, have been recognized as a cartel in the marketplace for professional football, end quote. There you have it, a cartel blast. Normally you hear that. And you think you're watching Narcos on Netflix, not the Raiders, on Sunday. Of course, team owner Mark Davis told ESPN that suit was, quote, meritless and malicious, end quote. And he said he'd have no further comment, except for one further comment. Quote, my feeling is, we're 3-10 and 10 and we're still relevant. It's a legal issue, and I'll let the attorneys make any further comment, end quote. Oh, uh, What? My feeling is we're 3-10 and and we're still relevant. Not sure what the hell that means, Marky, but I'll take a stab. Translation, we suck, but people still pay attention. Right. They're paying attention because you're a train wreck. You're in the news and people still talk about you and not because of anything good that you've done on the field because there's none of that. People still care about you because you're being sued by the city where your team plays and because you have nowhere to go next year. That's why you're relevant. That's why people talk about you. We're all slowing down to rubberneck that train wreck of a football team and organization. Dude's got like this Jerry Jones thing working. Where's my autumn wind, Albie? Thank you. He's got like this Jerry Jones thing working where he thinks... Hey, I don't give a damn what they say about us as long as they're talking about us. Yet that all publicity is good publicity thing, it's not. Especially not as it relates to the Raiders, Davis, and Chunky. So once again, the most relevant question, where the hell are these guys going to play next year? Because it's not going to be Oakland. Not according to reporter Jason Cole. He said, quote, High-ranking Raiders officials said today there is no way the team plays in Oakland in the 2019 season after the city filed suit. Sources say there are five or six cities that the team will consider, including some that already have NFL teams. So, they're not going to be in Oakland. That makes them homeless. And let me cut off the bum smack right now. There will not be bum smack about that. I'm not interested in, hey, Rome, war the Raiders owner having to cut his own hair to save money. Blast. From the looks of things, he already does that. Or Kirk Heinrich cuts Davis's hair with his spoon. But that's neither here nor there. We're not talking about that. We're talking about where are the Raiders going to play? Where are they going to play next year? Well, that new stadium in Las Vegas is not going to be ready next season. Playing at UNLV's home stadium for a season doesn't make sense because they'd have to make a bunch of improvements. How about squatting in the 49ers joint for a year? That apparently is not going to happen. Not according to Jason Cole. So where does that leave that team? Where does that leave them? 
San Diego has been mentioned a number of times. Now we're getting somewhere. San Diego. How's that grab you? San Diego? (laughs) San Diego. Not only did you lose your team to one of your biggest enemies ever, Los Angeles, now your single biggest enemy ever, the Raiders and Raider fan, could potentially move in and try to take over your hood. So, instead of having Raider fan come down once a year for Hell Week, you could have Raider fan in your own neighborhood eight times a year. But not to play your team, because they would be your team. How incredible would that be? Moreover, instead of gearing up to give Raider fan the hands, you would actually become Raider fan, San Diego. I mean, this whole thing is so amazing. Could you imagine if that actually went down? And what an awesome ring to it. How does this sound? San Diego Raiders. San Diego Super Raiders. Sing it with me, everybody. San Diego Super Raiders. I mean, are you kidding? How you feeling about that, Raider fan? How you feeling about that, San Diego citizen? And Raider fan, you got one game left in Oakland. One game left. And what a year to go out on. Mark Davis and Chunky were feeding you all that bull crap about how they might win a world championship for you before they bounced. And instead, they trot out there the worst team in the NFL. I don't know who I feel worse for. Raider fan or San Diego fan who might end up with Raider fan and being Raider fan. What can I say? All I always say is give me an A or give me an F. And Davis was bumping his gums like he was going to dominate that class, only to end up as the dumbest kid in the class. F minus, Marky. And while you had to pay for all this and endure this unbelievable tank job, the worst part is you don't even get to see them rise, rise up. Nope, Vegas is going to get that eventually, which brings me back to the original point. Where the hell are these guys going to be next year? Where are the Raiders going to play next year? Not in Oakland. I don't know. I just hope it's San Diego because that means the Raiders have not yet hit rock bottom. They can sink even lower. And the only thing worse for the fans of San Diego than losing their beloved Chargers to L.A., the city they hate most, would be to have the enemy come in and take their place. The San Diego Super Raiders. Hey, listen, I don't know if that could ever happen, but part of me wants it to. El Cajon! La Mesa, Mission Valley, Lemon Grove, Pacific Beach, Ocean Beach. I want to hear from you. For years, you all wanted to knock Raider fan the hell out. Now, you might be Raider fan. Is this thing on? Does anybody out there have a pulse? Did you not pay your phone bills? Why are my lines not lit like a freaking Christmas tree? Charger fan, you're now Raider fan. Bet you never thought that would happen. <laughs> Darius Leonard is my guest. Darius, great to have you on. How are you? I'm blessed. How are you? Good, great, man. Great. Me too. So you had another monster game on Sunday in that win over Houston. Let me start right there. You had that sack on Deshaun Watson. What did you see on that play? And then obviously, how good did it feel to get him down? Um, I just um, coached out up a good blitz. Uh, so the tackle came down and blocked on me. And, but Deshaun has tried to escape the pocket, so that allows me to use my hands to kind of get off and uh, get the sack. Um, and it just felt good to get a sack against him. And it was, it was a great sack at a perfect time and just to help that team, help our team out. Darius, the thing is, that was your seventh sack of the year, which is second among all rookies. But I want to point something out. You're a will, a will linebacker. So it's rare for a will linebacker to have that many sacks because of the assignments and the alignments that you get. So how do you explain how you've been able to get to the quarterback as often as you have playing that position? Um, I think it's more so my defensive line is just causing so much havoc. And so whenever I do blitz, the offensive line is worried about them, so they don't they don't see me. So it kind of allows me to kind of get free free um, free blitzes. We're talking to Darius Leonard of the Colts. In the meantime, that win was the team's sixth and seventh games. It was not that long, but you guys were one and five, and it looked like the season might be over. How were you able to get this thing turned around? And then what's to say about the guys in that locker room that nobody gave up? Um, we just we knew early what kind of what kind of guys we had in our locker room, and we always talk about being one percent better each and every day. So 
that's something we always work on. And you can just see the character of our guys, man. We we know that we're going to always compete, and we, we were not just going to lay down. So we just competed on all three phases, and now we're at where we're at now. I mean, like, you know it's not supposed to be like this, right? Like, you lead the NFL with 135 tackles, and that's despite the fact that you missed a game this year. Rookies are not supposed to come into this league and dominate the way you have. How would you describe this season so far? What's it been like for you? It's been crazy. Um, like like you said, I missed a game battling an um, ankle injury, but it's been crazy, man. Just the way Coach Blues, um the way we practice, we just talk about how we got to run to the ball. I mean, everything we do is full speed. And uh, we we take pride in that as linebackers, uh, always out competing everybody. Like we always want to be the number one hustling team, and uh, in the NFL. So it's just I think it's more so just me, just running to the ball and just making plays. The thing is, it's supposed to be challenging to make that transition from college to the NFL, but you're making it look easy. So let me ask you, what's been the biggest challenge in going from college to the NFL, or maybe has it been relatively easy? No, it's been a challenge, but I, my, I think my biggest challenge is when I watch film in, the, in college, you can usually find a weakest link that gives away run pass or find some tips here and there, but in the NFL, you really can't find too many tips on film. We're talking to Darius Leonard of the Colts. Now, growing up, you were a big Clemson fan. Your brother Anthony went there and spent a lot of time going to games and spending time around the program. By all accounts, that was the place that you wanted to be, but it didn't work out that way. Instead, you go to South Carolina State. Again, it might have been easy to get down and give up because you didn't end up at your dream school, but you didn't approach it that way. In fact, what was your approach at South Carolina State? Um, to prove everybody wrong, because um, once, once I... Once I committed to South Carolina State, it was all the talk around town that I wasn't big enough to play college football. I wasn't fast enough to play college football. I know that's why Clemson didn't offer me. But, I mean, I'm always down to prove everybody wrong. I'm a competitor, and I just had a competitive, competitive edge on me and just competed and just wanted to outwork everybody. All right, so then you go up against Clemson, and in one game you had 19 tackles. You had a block field goal, and then somebody came up to you afterwards and said you were playing like, quote, a straight maniac. Do you remember what were you thinking going into that game, and then what was it like being on the field against those guys? Going, going, on, going into that game, I mean, it was in Death Valley, so I wanted, to, I wanted to play well there. I had a big family there, big crowds. I mean, so I just wanted to go out and just play, just do everything to help my team win, and after the game, uh, I think a reporter came up to me and said, uh, can I interview you? You had 18 tackles. And it, I, was, I was in complete shock that I had that many tackles. In the meantime, that gloss, that nickname stuck. The Maniac. You're playing like a straight maniac. How do you like that as a nickname? I love it, man. I mean, it fits my personality on the field. I mean, because if you, if you see me just walking around, I'm, I'm a kind of a cool guy. I speak to you here and there. But then when I'm on the field, I just – I had crazy. I'm always screaming, just having a good time. Talking to Darius Leonard for a few more moments. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because Jamie Moore, who is one of the Colts scouts, said that when they went to one of your college practices, there was this guy out there in the end zone at 5.30 in the morning, quote, hooting and hollering, bringing all the energy, end quote, and that person was you. So where does the energy come from, and how important is it to you that you don't just lead that team in tackles, but also in energy, man, hype, fun, that kind of thing? I don't, it, it comes from man, just my love for the game and, and what I do. I mean, if I'm gonna be out there, I'm gonna have fun. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have fun out there, and I'm a. I just want everybody around me to just have fun with me. So I mean, at five thirty in the morning, there's nobody want to be up. Nobody want to be at practice. So if they see that that leader out there just having a good time, screaming, hooting, and hollering, hopefully that that'll be a contagious, and I have somebody else beside me hooting and hollering, and it just help our team win. Darius Leonard, my guest. Now, because of the year you're having, you're getting a lot of attention and run for Defensive Rookie of the Year. What would the award mean to you if you could win that thing? It would mean a lot. Um, not just for me, but back in my hometown, just allowing us to see that, that there's people that come out of a small town who can do great things. And coming from a small town that I did, I mean, a lot of people really don't make it out. Um, some people use, use the streets or use drugs, so a lot of people can see that there, there's a way out besides that. So finally, Darius, when you go home, when you go back to that small town, and to your point, a lot of people do not make it out. When you go back, what's that like? And what are the folks back home? How do they treat you? Uh, it's amazing, man. When I go back, I mean, I feel like a royalty a little bit. Um, everywhere I go, everybody wants hugs. Everybody wants pictures, autographs. So, I mean, it's nothing but love when I go back. So uh, I can't wait to go back and uh, see the family again. Quick. Find CBS Sports Network. This is my way to direct you to our TV program. One is Mickey Rourke. Who do you think the other is? 
Axel. Why do I have a picture of these two? Granted, they look a little different than they used to look, but don't we all? <laughs> the reason I have this is Phil and Dallas tweets, would you mind not playing that loud, obnoxious rock and roll at the beginning of your segments? Thanks. Rose Axel. You see what this guy did? There's your picture. If you're watching on CBS Sports Network, and this guy inverted his name. He called him Rose Axel. Dyslexic, perhaps. Or maybe you're trying to comment, Phil, on how you think that Axel looks. I'm not gonna try and get inside your head. And then there's this. Long form. This is old school. Back in the day, we had an actual email contest, and we'd go long form. It's before the short attention deficits of social. We had a fax machine. In fact, an email contest and a fax contest, and they'd be long form like this. Dear Jim, I know there's all kind of sports to talk about today, but let's get real about the story of the day. Did you see that photo of Axel Rose and Mickey Rourke? Again, I probably should have built this into a still for a TV, but I'm just, I printed the picture because this guy emailed it and so have a lot of you. Did you see that photo of Axl Rose and Mickey Rourke? It looked like a leather factory exploded and then got body slammed by a porcupine. I mean, Mickey looked like Mickey, which is terrible, but Axl Holy hell, if a picture is worth a thousand words, Axel's pores would just be screaming, time to die, 333 and one-third times. The baddest rock star on the planet looks like a middle-aged biker chick. Dude looks like what Buffalo Bill would have looked like if Jodie Foster didn't find that insect. Look at the photo, Van Smack. That's not Axl Rose. That's Mama Fratelli from the Goonies. So yeah, the Raiders are homeless, Army has a good quarterback, and the Colts have linebackers again. Cool stuff. But Axel and Mickey just took a picture together and there's more moisture in the Sahara than there is in both dudes' faces combined. Rack me, I'm out. Phil in St. Paul. Phil, you can't get racked for an email, but if you could, I would. There's more moisture in the Sahara than there is in both dudes' faces combined. Can you zoom in with that fancy camera? Can you zoom in on that? Can you not zoom in? <laughs> Come on. Closer. Closer. Okay, I don't want to say I do your job, New York, but can you bring it a little closer? Today would be great. I got a hard out. Sharon, come on, man. Tom, Tom, can you kick some ass? Can you get these guys going? Closer. There you go. Hold on. Wait. Wait. Yeah, wait, wait. We are joined by quarterback Kelvin Hopkins Jr. Kelvin, great to have you on. How are you? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing great. It's great to talk to you. So the Army-Navy game, obviously, is special to pretty much everybody who's a fan of college football. But for those, and most of us, who have never played in that game, what is it like in the days and the hours before that game? What's the buildup like as a player? Uh, the the buildup is insane. I mean, uh, all week it's just different different things going on around school where, uh, you know, you got people talking to you and uh, graduates uh, emailing you and texting you and then trying to, you know, get into your head and talk to you about the game and tell them how much it means to you. So it's definitely an awesome experience around here on campus. Everybody's yelling, beat Navy, and, you know, it's just great atmosphere here and leading up to the game. Kevin Hopkins, Jr., my guest. Now, you had a great game, and you were named the MVP. I know that you'll say that everything you did was part of the game plan. You'll give the credit to your teammates, but how special is it to be the MVP of the Army-Navy game? It, it, it's very special. Uh, like you said, it definitely goes out to my teammates. We played a great game as a whole, and I think it was one of our uh, most complete games on both sides of the ball where, you know, everybody's flying around and being intense. But uh, 
for, from my standpoint, uh, just coming from where I came from, just uh, starting off at prep school and, and being on the scout team as a freshman and, and working hard there and, you know, kind of not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel sometimes and, and then grinding hard in the spring ball and things like that just to, to be at that point in my career to where something like that happened to be blessed and, and, and be able to uh, come out as the MVP in, in a game where so many people had so many great plays and did a lot of great things, especially on this team. Now, the, it is just a humbling experience. Kelvin Hopkins Jr., I was going to say also, excuse me, the program, that's her third straight win over Navy after Navy had a 14-game winning streak in the series. So what's it mean to be a part of the group that turned the tables in the rivalry? It, it, it means a lot. Uh, you know, I was here when uh, we won it for the first time in 14 years, and, and that was a, a, an experience. Uh, just being a freshman on that team, not really getting to play or not being a part of the game plan, but just being a part of, of those guys and being a part of that group that, that ended it. But uh, when I showed up here, you know, that was one of the main goals. Obviously, we wanted to turn the season around and, and get wins and, and, and be a winning program, but getting over that hump with Navy and, and getting the CIC back here to West Point was, was one of the big points that we had uh, as a program. So being here and, and being 3-0 and against Navy in the last three years is just a testament to how hard uh, – this group has worked and the group that come before us have worked. Yeah, it's got to feel amazing, but it's not just Navy, right? I mean, the entire program has completely turned around. It was not that long ago that this team was really struggling, winning a couple of games a year, and now you've got back-to-back 10-win seasons. How do you explain that turnaround, and then what's it feel like to be a big part of the turnaround? It's just a credit to our coaching staff and the guys on this team. Um, we work hard year-round. I think any college football team would say that, but we really work hard here. We really want to be great and and uh, the coaches, they push us to new levels every day. Even, you know, even in the off season when we're just watching film, they want us to find little things to work on and, and things like that that we can get better on. So I think it's just a concerted effort from everybody within the program to, to, to maximize the potential that we have. We're talking to Kelvin Hopkins Jr. You know, it's not just the fact that you're winning 10 games. You nearly beat Oklahoma in their place earlier this season in a game where you had 142 total yards and a touchdown. You took them to OT. What do you remember about that game, and what do you think that game tells the world about this team? Just looking back on that game, I, I think that that was uh, an example of exactly what uh, Army football is about. Um, you know, we weren't supposed to go in there and compete with a team like Oklahoma, and you know, we knew that we were the underdogs in that situation, but that's never our mindset. We're going to play our game no matter who's out there or who we're playing against. We're going to be that tough team that we preach and talk about being uh, that fundamentally sound team, and I think that that game was a display of that. Uh, we went out there. We, we did our jobs. Uh, each player played so hard. I mean, I, I just remember the focus on the sideline that each individual player had. I just remember looking at everybody's eyes and and thinking, you know, there's a concerted effort to really get this job done. And, you know, it, it definitely hurt not coming out on the positive end of that and not getting the win. But uh, just to know that, you know, we could we could go out there and compete with anybody in college football and, and go out there and give somebody like Oklahoma a run for their money just uh, gave us positive strides to go forward with the season. Kelvin Hopkins Jr. joining us. The thing is, though, I mean, you're coming off a 10-win season, but there was only one returning starter on the offensive line, and you were taking over as quarterback. What was it like to step in this season and take over for Ahmad Bradshaw? It, it was it was definitely a challenge. Uh, coming into camp, you know, I wasn't the number one. I wasn't the solidified number one, and we have a lot of great guys in the quarterback room, and it could have been any one of us, uh, and they all would have done a great job. And, you know, I was blessed enough to, to win the job, but, you know, I knew that those guys are going to push me all season long to be as, as good as I could possibly be. And then uh, with the O-line, again, it was it was a dog mentality. Those guys, those are tough guys. I love playing behind those guys. They, uh, they wanted to come in and prove a point and show that, you know, it, it, it's not – individual guys it's the group effort it's all five of them working like one that they preach the mob mentality and all five working like one so you know just for them to come in and have success and do what they're doing even though when people saw uh, that we were only going to have one returning starter is is awesome to me I'm so proud of that group up front Kelvin Hopkins Jr. is my guest. You know, the thing is, going to West Point obviously is not for everybody. It's extremely challenging, and that's before you even factor in football. What was it about West Point that appealed to you the most? It is that challenging aspect. Uh, I think uh, there, there's there's something to be said about West Point and its academics and, and the military aspect that, that really challenges you day to day. And uh, I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to really challenge myself with my college experience. And I think that's anybody on this team or anybody at this academy would say the same thing. Um, 
you know, just to be a part of something bigger than, you know, just waking up every day, going to class, going to football, or, or the opportunity to serve my country when I'm done is, is definitely a big part of it. But just being a part of something that, that's, that's challenging and different than every day than the average college football player. You know, I've had your head coach, Jeff Munkin, on the program a number of times, and I could not be more impressed with what he's accomplished since he arrived at West Point. What's it been like to play for him? Uh, playing for Coach Munkin is definitely an experience, and it's a great one. I, I love it so much. Uh, I remember uh, when I was being recruited, they hadn't played a season there yet. They were just coming from Georgia Southern. So it, it was really just a vision from the coaching staff and, you know, just ideas of where they wanted the program to go and, and where they wanted to uh, to be you know, in my time there and going on in the future. And, you know, Coach Munkin has done a great job of not only preaching that, that, that direction, but making sure that we're all going in that direction. And, again, the coaching staff is great. They, they, they believe in Coach Munkin. We all believe in Coach Munkin, and, and we follow him to, to the end. And, I mean, he, he's a great coach, and he does a lot of great things for this program. You know, he's serious. He's focused. But at the end of that game on Saturday, my man was jumping around like he was one of the players. What's that say about him as a head coach, and what did you think when you saw that? Oh yeah, I mean he's he gets excited just like we do. I mean a lot of a lot of head coaches like to to stay even keel or, or keep a, a level head. Coach Munkin, if he's upset, he'll let you know. If uh if he's happy, he'll let you know. And uh you know when the game's over, when the job is done, he he's one of the most excited people in the locker room. He's jumping around. I've seen him punch a ceiling in before, so uh, he definitely gets excited when the job is done. But when there's business to be done, he, he's as serious as anybody. Hey, Kelvin, before you go, is there is it true, like, when you were coming up and you were quite a basketball player as well, when you were playing Pop Warner, did you really go, like, four years without winning a game? And if that's true, <laughs> as competitive yeah, as you are, uh, what was that like? It's like he's asking me this. Yes, I did. Uh, my first few years of football, uh, I hated football. I mean, I couldn't stand it. And I think the main reason was because I wasn't winning. Um I hate losing, and, and I think that, that, that comes from that time period in my life. But uh, definitely there was four years where I did not win a single football game. I think we scored 12 points in four years. And, um, I, I mean, I had some great coaches, and, and they're still in my life today, and I'm so glad and, and grateful for what they done what they did for me. But, uh, yeah, we definitely were not the best team. All right, so you had some great coaches, and you're thankful. But in the middle of this also is your mother, Cynthia. Now, did you go to your mom and say, hey, listen, I, I'm not about this life. I don't like football. And if so, what was her response? Yeah, I definitely told my mom I was not about this life. I was a basketball player. She knew that. And uh, I let my dad talk me into playing football, and uh, my mom was kind of against it at first. But she had money invested into it. So, you know, I think that was one of the main reasons she wouldn't let me quit. But just also um, – she she is a hard worker. I mean, my mom, she's done a lot for our family, and uh, she produces a lot, and she's there for me to this day. And I think that was one of her messages that she sent was that, you know, if you start something, you finish it. You don't quit, and uh, you see it through. You got people counting on you, and, you know, you can't just walk out on them. So that was kind of one of her messages that she always gave me when, you know, I went to her and I wanted to wanted to quit or give up. She was always, you know, you got to finish what you start. And she still preaches that to me to this very day. And then finally, you got another opportunity coming up. The Armed Forces Bowl is December 22nd. You've got Houston. What's it mean to you to play in that game and have another opportunity to play on the big stage? It, it, it's an awesome opportunity. Uh, we went to Armed Forces Bowl last year, and it was a great experience. And it was a great game. And uh, uh, San Diego State was a great opponent. But uh, also, we have another great opponent in Houston. And we just want to go out there and compete. And like we, like I said earlier, it's another chance for us to display what Army football is about, that toughness and that grit and the execution of fundamentals that we, that we uh, preach about. And, you know, it's just a stage for us to go out there and show this country what Army football is about and, and, and go out there and, and compete with uh, a team like Houston that has so many great players and so many great uh, games played. Exactly. What are you doing on December 27th? Better question. What are you doing on December 26th? Because I already know exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to get the fam together. And we are going to post up for the Independence Bowl on December 27th because that is easily the most important game of the entire bowl season. Now, do not come up in here and waste my time on Alabama, Oklahoma. Don't care. Clemson, Notre Dame, really don't care. I did until I saw this because now I'm all about Temple v. Duke the early afternoon of December 27th. Yes, I do know that Temple head coach Jeff Collins took the Georgia Tech job. He's not going to be with that team. I also know this. Collins will not be there, but Ed Foley will be. 
Ed Foley is interim head coach. And I know this too. Temple has not been this electric since John Chaney tried to fight John Calipari back in the day. I just got my ass blasted for giving him hell down in West Virginia. And here you get a hell of a job right here today. Good job. Three class guys. And you pick them out here and single them out. You can't get that damn nigga from the guys. Shut up, guys. talking about some old school things right we talked about Douglas and Tyson and then you got that that if you've not seen that before that is one of the most unbelievable surreal exchanges ever John Chaney going crazy on John Calipari saying I will kill you I will kick your ass if I see you like he was ready to go right then and there that's one you should look up if you've not seen that things have not been that that electric at Temple since then but they are now. That was then. This is now. That was then. Ed Foley is the epitome of now. Because Eddie F. showed up at a podium in Shreveport. And my man burned that city right to the ground. Now you know how this typically goes. You know how these trips go. A couple of head coaches come in. Show up in the host city. They pose for picks with the trophy. Then they spit vanilla platitudes about how honored they are to be playing in the whatever bowl and how nice it is to be in the no-name anonymous city. Except Ed Foley, not Ed Foley. Not about that life. Ed Foley is all about the Shreveport life. Ed Foley is all about the Independence Bowl. Don't believe me? Then roll this. But our football team is going to come down here ready to play. We're going to practice really hard. We're going to play really hard. I hope that we play well, but I know that we'll play hard. And we're going to find out about Duke, and we're going to find out about Temple, and we're going to find out about which one of those football clubs wants to hit each other harder or longer. That's what we're going to decide here on the 27th. While we're, while we're getting ready to do that, I hope that you see the finest group of young men that's ever been through Shreveport. I hope you have a chance to see them hold a door open for you or say thank you for being here or be truly appreciative because, guys, I love this team. And I love these players, and I know you will too when you get around them. Please get around our players. They are going to love you. They are going to love Shreveport, and you're going to love them. And they are going to be so appreciative of being here Guys, it's going to be one of the greatest teams that you've ever had here. I promise you that. So we're fired up to be here. Thank you to everybody for having us. <laughs> Go ahead and inject that straight into my veins. No, skip the veins. You can inject that straight into my eyeballs. Eyeballs. Because what Ed Foley has is what I need. I need to find out about Duke. I need to find out about Temple. I need to find out who wants to hit each other harder and for longer. And we're going to find out about Duke, and we're going to find out about Temple, and we're going to find out about which one of those football clubs wants to hit each other harder and longer. That's what I need to find out. Man, you can tell Ed Foley. You can tell Ed Foley that there are way too many ball games. You can tell him Shreveport is boring, and it's not the greatest town in America. I'm not doing it. Because for that guy, those are two reasons to go. This guy was raving about the city on the drive from the airport. He told the local media, quote, We were driving to the hotel. We saw a little shack with a sign out that said, Gizzards, Po' Boys, and Philly Cheesesteak Sandwiches. I can't wait to try the Philly Cheese to see what it's all about here. End quote. My man is hyped on Gizzards. Gizzards. And the Independence Bowl, and Shreveport, and life itself. Man, nobody has ever been more pumped to be in Shreveport than Ed Foley. Nobody has ever been more pumped about anything or to do anything than Ed Foley is to coach the Temple Owls in the Independence Bowl. Yo, excuse me. Can you give me one quick second? Because there's a freaking brick wall that I need to run through. Why? Because Ed Foley has me feeling that I can. Remember, 
That's not even Ed Foley talking to the Temple football team. That's Ed Foley talking to the local media in Shreveport that he just met from the mayor's office at the mayor's podium. And in case you were not clear, Temple football is coming to Shreveport and they are going to practice hard and they're going to hold the door open for the townspeople. We're going to practice really hard. I hope you have a chance to see them hold the door open for you. I mean, what more could you ask for? I haven't talked a lot of Temple football on this show this year, but I guarantee you that is the finest group of young men that will ever go through Shreveport, Louisiana. Why? Because Ed Foley said so. Now, I've got a rule on this program, a hard and fast rule on this program. That rule is if Ed Foley says it, it is true. So I know for a fact that our players will be holding doors open for people and thanking everybody for everything. You want to tell Ed Foley that the Independence Bowl meant more when it was the Poulan Weed Eater Independence Bowl. You go right ahead. Just be prepared to take a fist to your face before you finish speaking. And clones. Because I know what you think before you think it. You can skip the whole... Ed Foley went to the Matt Foley School of Motivational Speaking joke. If that fruit were hanging any lower, it would be underground. No, Ed Foley is not Matt Foley. Matt Foley was a fictional character. Ed Foley is a freaking legend, a living legend. He is flesh and he is blood and he is standing in front of you screaming about Duke and Temple playing in Shreveport on December 27th. Texas A&M D coordinator Mike Elko reportedly turned down the Temple head coaching job earlier. Probably because he didn't want to be the guy to follow the guy. He didn't want to be the guy to follow Ed Foley. I know I wouldn't. And no, I don't give a damn that he's never won an FBS football game as a head coach. Temple. I don't want somebody telling me how to do my business, so I'm not going to tell you how to do your business. Just do the right thing. Make this man your head coach. The guy you want, Temple, is the guy right in front of you. The guy losing his mind over the Independence Bowl. Five days into his interim gig. Coach him up, Ed. Pick him up, Temple. I mean, seriously, boys, do not get rolled by Duke. Do not do your coach like that. Not after he went all Howard Dean in Shreveport. I love this guy. Not Howie. Eddie. We're fired up to be here. Thank you to everybody for having us. Nobody has ever been as hyped as anybody is about anything than he is to lead those fine young men into Shreveport to lay a butt kicking on Duke. And we're going to find out about Duke and we're going to find out about Temple and we're going to find out about which one of those football clubs wants to hit each other harder and longer. I can't wait to find out. And I can't spin that clock fast enough. Get me to the 27th. Cody Blick. Cody, it's great to have you on. Good morning. How are you? Hey, Jim. Doing well. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on, Cody. So you got quite a story to tell. Let's go back a little bit first before the story. You grew up in San Ramon, and you played your college golf at San Jose State. After a huge college career, you then turned pro. Cody, what were the first few years of your professional career like? Yeah, you know, it was... Uh... It was a, a change of worlds, definitely. I uh, I left college early, and and I really wanted to go up to the uh, Canadian Tour, the McKenzie Tour. Um, uh, I had some conflicts with college and and Q school for that, so left school early and and got up got up into Canada and and really got tossed around for a little while. My first year up there, I, I got beat up pretty bad, and uh, you know the the last two years I, I kind of got it together a little bit and, and started competing, and uh, and pretty happy to get some Web.com starts now. Cody Blick is joining us. So this past weekend was Web.com Tour Q School. Cody, for somebody in his third year as a pro, what was your mindset and your approach going into Q School? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a pretty big deal. I mean, it's it's probably the biggest event of the year. I mean, it, it sets up your entire next season. So there's definitely a lot of pressure and, and, and a lot going on that week. But you, you try your best to just treat it as a normal event and uh, – Go about go about it like you're just playing another golf tournament. I mean, at the end of the day, it's 
it's still just four rounds of golf, right? Yeah, it is, but at the same time, just so people understand this, you have to understand the stakes involved. I mean, if you finish in the top 40 in Q School, that means you'll get at least eight guaranteed starts on the tour next season instead of having to go out there and play Monday qualifiers before tournaments. So how big of a difference does that mean to you as a golfer? Oh, it's crazy. I mean, it's it's job security, right? So it's there, there are eight guaranteed starts, and, and if I have a, a couple decent events in those first starts, I'll, I'll be set for the rest of the season. So... To have those eight events is is such a relief, and I mean, if, if I had partial status, it's it's still good. But yeah, like you said, you'd have to be going and, and doing Monday qualifiers, which is an absolute grind, and and you really it's it's unknown. Like you don't know what events you're going to play in. So this uh, this is easy on on the schedule and, and planning and. It, it takes a lot of pressure off, for sure. No doubt. Golfer Cody Blick joining us. So then Q School was taking place at Whirlwind Golf Club in Chandler, Arizona. And then after three rounds, you were tied for 74th. So you still had some work to do to get into the top 40. So how were you feeling after those first three rounds as you got ready for that final round? Yeah, you know, the first round was, was okay. Second round was better. And then the third round, a lot of people don't know, is Saturday morning. I'm on the first tee, and, and they announced my name, and I, I wiped the face of my driver off, and I noticed like a three-quarter-inch crack in the face. So oh. I didn't know if I was using this altered club all week or, or what was going on. So that was another panic. I had to flag down a rules official and uh, ended up teeing off with 13 clubs. So I didn't have a driver until the, the fifth, sixth hole, and, and luckily Titleist was great, and they, they hustled one out to me. So I thought I thought that was going to be kind of the crazy thing of the week. And uh <laughs> So Saturday night, uh, you know, I'm sitting in tied 74th, and I'm four shots out of it. Still felt like I was very much in contention. I uh, was thinking I needed eight on Sunday to, to get through, and and was feeling okay, to tell you the truth. And then, yeah, when I woke up and the clubs weren't in the garage, it was it was a panic all over again. You see, Cody, for those who don't know, exactly what happened was you get up and you have breakfast on Sunday. Your coach's fiance comes in and says, hey, Cody, where are your clubs? What was your reaction when she asked you that? Yeah, you know, I, I was pretty confused at first. I, I didn't really know what she was asking. They, they ended up going out for a run, and they, they left pretty early in the morning, and they noticed the garage door was open, but they didn't think much of it. Um, and then they got back, and, and it was very, you know, nonchalant. It was, hey, where, where are your clothes, by the way? And whatever, I said, they're in the garage, and they said, no, no, they're not. So I, I ran out to the garage, and... Yeah, lo and behold, somebody had walked off with my club. So uh, at that point, it was it was a, a freak out mode, and and really just I I got on the phone with Titleist ten minutes later, and and they killed it. They got a set together for me in ninety minutes. Cody Blake joining us. Now you, what you also did was you immediately jumped on Instagram and you posted a five thousand dollar reward for anybody who could return them. So then, what happened next? Was there any kind of reaction to that? Yeah, I was I was desperate at that time. I mean, I was really just trying to get my clubs back, so I was I was doing anything I could. But uh, I haven't haven't heard anything back yet. I have uh, a bunch of messages from from people in the Phoenix area saying they're on the look and and they're they're looking in pawn shops and golf shops and no uh, no hits yet. But uh, yeah, that Instagram post turned out to. Uh, to blow the story up, it uh, it got pretty viral. I wasn't expecting that. Cody Blick joining us. So Titleist takes care of you, and how they did it was really impressive. Where was your driver from, and whose five through nine irons were you using? Yeah, so uh, it was it was a big scramble. It was piece by piece getting the set together. So the irons ended up being the head superintendent's. His wife had to drive them from their house to the golf course. Wow. And uh, Titleist just pieced together a driver and a three-wood, and then I grabbed some wedges out of the uh, the rental bin and and a, a random Scotty Cameron, and off off we went. Cody, did you say rental wedges? <laughs> rental wedges. And actually, the, uh, the five-iron turned out to be a rental wedge, too. It had some S300 high-launch shaft, and it was... It was unbelievably light, so that was uh, probably the hardest club to uh, to adjust to. How banged up were they? Oh, pretty destroyed, but uh, it's okay. I mean, they worked. They did. Cody Blake joining us. Now, your putter, you had that putter for nine years, and you said that losing that was like your dog dying. What did the putter mean to you, and then what kind of a putter did you have on Sunday? Yeah, I had um, I had the same putter for, forever. I mean, it was an uh, old Scotty Cameron, and it was, you know, the, 
the other clubs can be replaced, but the putter you have like that special connection with. And, uh, you know, I had been given other Scotty Cameron some titleists and, and they just weren't the same to be, to be frank with you. So I had this old beat up, awesome little putter of mine. And, uh, yeah, I had this connection with it. So, so to lose that, it, it stings definitely, but they, they gave me a, uh, it was some newer Scotty Cameron studio and, uh, it was it was a little longer, a little heavier, and you know I I didn't feel totally comfortable with it, but uh, one of those situations where it is what it is, and and I just had to roll with it. You know this, yeah, that's the thing, right, Cody? I mean, so much of that sport is about managing your emotions and managing yourself on the course. Like when something like that happens, it would be so easy to not only go into a state of panic, but to stay in a state of panic and completely freak out, maybe even shut down. How did you go about managing your emotions and getting ready to play? Yeah, so my my longtime coach for nine years now, Gary, he, he was on the bag. So, you know, I, there, there were seven of us in, in the rental house, friends, family, coaches, et cetera. And, I mean, I'm just so fortunate that they were there. I mean, they, they calmed me down and, and kept me in it really. And then to have Titleist on top of it, taking care of the clubs. I mean, they, they all made it really easy for me. I mean, the seven, seven friends and family and five or six Titleist guys, I, I had a, a whole dozen squad uh, on my side there, so so they really uh, helped me out. And then, Cody, in terms of the the round, I mean, I could I have to jump around and skip around a little bit, but on that final hole, you had an 18-footer, and your coach said, just two putts from here, you end up birdieing that. I mean, what's it like when that final putt drops? And I hate to spoiler alert for those who missed it, but a final round of 63, given everything you had to go through when you had to have it most, what was it like to drain that putt? Yeah, it was pretty cool. So my goal for the week was to get to 20 under. I felt like that was going to be pretty safe. And going into Sunday, I felt like 18 was going to be the number. So, um, you know, I, I kind of had that overachieving goal, if you will, at at, at 20 under. And, uh, you know, obviously on the last hole, we were at 18 and, and couldn't get to 20. But, uh, yeah, Gary looked at me and said, Code, you, you only need two putts from here. And, and I just thought, you know, yeah, like let's let's just get to 19, and and it just so happened to go in. So it was a it was a pretty cool way to finish having having nine birdies, nine pars is uh, is definitely pretty special. And that round moved you all the way up to a tie for 25th. Man, is there any way to put into words? I mean, as an athlete, as a golfer, as somebody who played the game your entire life, what Sunday was like for you? And then, like emotionally, what's it like when you uh, you walk that thing off and it all kind of hits you? Yeah, you know, when I was on the course, I didn't know this whole story had uh, unfolded. Uh. So, to me, it was just it was just like an unfortunate situation, and I was just proud of myself for the way the way I got through it, and and so happy that my team was was there to help me through it. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I got off the the last hole, and and my mom was crying, and and my dad came up and gave me a huge hug, and you know, it was really cool that I. I had gotten starts, but it was a it was a bigger reaction than that. They they told me it it was blowing up, you know how it is, and uh, really was not expecting that at all. So to manage the emotions on Sunday and, and get through is is definitely very special. Now you gotta have a lot of pride, a lot of pride to handle that the way you did. So do you think you're gonna see these bats again? Are they gonna find their way back to you? Oh man, you know. I, I hope at least the putter finds its way back, but I, I got a sneaky feeling that that thing is long gone, so so I don't think so. It's an amazing story, Cody Blick, my guest. Cody, it's a great story. You did a great job of telling that story on the program. I really appreciate you. I hope you at least find the putter, but really good to have you on the show. It's an amazing accomplishment. Jim, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, and uh, happy holidays. Let's talk some hockey. Time to talk hockey. Not just hockey. St. Louis Blues hockey. We don't do a lot of that. And the Blues have had themselves a season. Coming into this year, they were kind of a trendy pick to make some noise. And they have. They have made noise. Unfortunately, all the wrong kind of noise. They've already fired their head coach. And they're second to last in the Central. They lost by five goals Sunday. Booed right off their own ice. Now I would never sit here and call a guy or call a team or call a franchise garbage. Garbage. But right now... They're garbage. And when things get off to a bad start, they've got a way of getting worse quickly. As an example, two players get into a fight in practice on Monday. No, let me rephrase that. Two St. Louis Blues players get into a fight. Two teammates giving each other the hands. 
And that's not one of those deals where a coach loves to see that because guys care so much. Guys are so competitive. Guys hate losing. Unless the coach wants to see two of his own dudes legitimately try to knock each other the hell out. Because Zach Sanford and Robert Portuzo dropped gloves. And according to reports, one of the final sections of Monday's practice was a three-on-three. Sanford was battling for position in front of the goal. Bortuzzo was fighting to keep him out of position. I'll let the St. Louis Post-Dispatch take it from here. Quote, Quickly, there were punches, with Bortuzzo landing some good shots to Sanford's head. Assistant coach Steve Ott skated in to separate them. Another assistant, Mike Van Ryn, then held Sanford back. Sanford threw his stick like a spear in the general direction of Bortuzzo, who skated off the ice and went to the dressing room. End quote. First off, the punches that Bortuzzo landed were not just good shots. They were hammer shots. He was allegedly beating the crap out of his teammate. And how about the fact that Sanford threw his stick like a spear at Portuzo. Sounds bad, right? You're trying to spear a teammate? You're trying to beat the crap out of a teammate? Sounds pretty bad. Well, not according to another teammate, Pat Maroon. Maroon liked it. He said, quote, Obviously, it's unfortunate that they fought. Let me stop right there. Whenever somebody says, Obviously, it's unfortunate that they fought, what he means is, it's a damn good thing these guys dropped gloves. Obviously, it's an unfortunate thing that they fought, but sometimes it's good for guys. It's frustration. I don't think Bobo meant to. I don't think Sandy meant to. It's just part of the game. And just working hard and getting frustrated. Oh, and he seemed pretty happy about it too. Quote, you got to enjoy it. That's part of hockey, right? We're still teammates. Sometimes people get heated and frustrations build up. I love that stuff. I think it's great. That's me, though. I don't know if anybody else likes it. End quote. That's awesome. You know, like, fighting is part of hockey. And if fighting is part of hockey, then teammates beating the crap out of each other and spearing are part of hockey. Hey, whatever works for you, Pat. The question, though, and it fired him up, but the real question was, was it going to fire up a team that had been playing like garbage? Would that fight fire the team up before they had to face the Panthers? And the answer was yes. Not only fired them up, but it was Bobo. Bobo who was getting it done. Roll this. The scrap in practice, the battle that was going on there, and you can expect a big game from Robert Bortuzzo here who's got the puck now. And he gets it in off the referee. It goes in, but that will not count. You can't score off the referee. And he's hurt. Tim Peel is hurt. There's no question. You rarely see something like this happen. I mean, he, Tim Peel, the veteran referee, was in the far corner. And it, oh my goodness, it hit him right in the midsection right there. And he goes down awkwardly right here. I mean, look at this bounce. Let me tell you something. The NHL does not get nearly enough credit for its technology. You hear the ambient sound? You can hear the referee screaming. I think that's what that was. The referee screaming in anguish. How about the announcer starting off before that went down? You can expect a big game from Robert Portuzo. Yeah, it looked like Bobo was just intending to dump the puck into the zone, yet instead he scored. One problem, he scored off the ref. Another problem, he scored off the ref's junk. A clear junk carom for a goal. Bobo fired the puck in. It clanked off of referee Tim Peel's junk and beat Roberto Luongo on his near post. Hey, look, I know the puck takes funny bounces, but that is the most amazing carom in league history. I mean, I've always maintained a goalie cannot be beaten at the near post. And you sure as hell cannot be beaten at the near post by a shot off a referee's junk. That might be the greatest goal ever. I mean, what are the odds of that? And my man Peel? My man Peel went down like he was shot. Of course. Why wouldn't he? That was shot. A shot. A shot to the package. And he dropped to the ice in a hurry. And he had to be helped off. Of course he did. He just took an NHL shot. 
to his package. That's the second straight day that I've had to talk about a guy taking a shot to the fruit stand. That's two for me. That's two for me. That's two for me. Two for me, but apparently none for Bobbo because the goal did not count. Again, let me run this back one more time. If you're watching on CBS Sports Network, you'll see how amazing it looks. If you're not and you're listening, you will certainly hear how amazing it sounds. The scrap in practice, the battle that was going on there, and you can expect a big game from Robert Bortuzzo here, who's got the puck now. And he gets it in off the referee. It goes in, but that will not count. You can't score off the referee, and he's hurt. Tim Peel is hurt. There's no question. You rarely see something like this happen. I mean, he, Tim Peel, the veteran referee, was in the far corner, and it, oh my goodness, it hit him right in the midsection right there, and he goes down awkwardly right here. I mean, look at this bounce. Midsection, is that what they're calling it now? Hit him in the midsection? You mean hit him in the junk? Apparently, though, there's a rule against firing the puck off of a ref or a ref's package and into the back of the net. It cannot go off of the ref and directly into the net. Then it does not count. So they waved it off. So in case you were wondering, Bobbo, who got into a fight with Sandy, said that hitting the ref was an accident. Bobbo said, and I quote, I went for a dump in and I double clutched. So I changed my angle. I caught Peelzy and I felt bad to be honest. Shocked when it went in. I didn't know the rule, obviously, so I put my hands in the air. I don't think a lot of people knew the rule. End quote. Hockey players are the best. Almost anybody who does what I do will tell you that, that NHLers are among the best guys to talk to. Generally, they're the best. I mean, it's not enough that they have nicknames for each other, like Bobbo and Sandy, but they've got them for the refs, too. So, Bobbo fought Sandy and then decked Peelzy with a puck to the package. Better yet, Bobbo, who fought Sandy, was going for a dump in, double clutched, and then drilled Peelzy in the Nadzi and scored. Except it didn't count. Now, what I'm not going to do here is get into the weeds on whether that goal should have counted because it looked like Luongo touched it before it went in. In that case, it would have counted. Because if you can somehow bank a shot off of a ref's junk and into the net, not only do you deserve that goal, you deserve two. It's two for me. It should have been two for Bobbo after beating up Sandy and then bouncing a puck off of Peelzy and hitting him right in the Nadzi. Uh, I've never heard anything that sounded like that. That was amazing. Uh, that sound is incredible sound. Whoever mic the rink should win an award for that. The scrap in practice, the battle that was going on there, and you can expect a big game from Robert Bortuzzo here, who's got the puck now. And he gets it in off the referee. It goes in, but that will not count. We've all been there. You can't score off the referee, and he's hurt. Tim Peel is hurt. There's no question. You rarely see something like this happen. I mean, he... Tim Peel, the veteran referee, was in the far corner. And it, oh my goodness, it hit him right in the midsection right there. And he goes down off. That's hard to listen to. Right here. I mean, look at this bounce. That's a grown man screaming, allegedly, in anguish. That is hard to listen to. Hey, Matt, what's up? Hey, Jim Rome. From Lake Forest to Luxembourg, from Irvine to Indonesia, I want to wish all my peoples at the CBS Sports Net a happy holiday season. Jimmy. Give my best to D.A., who is literally smiling ear to ear these days. I mean, Jack Nicholson's Joker thinks dude has a ginormous grin. And shout out to Reggie McKenzie, man. Hey, you got a raw deal. Raider Nation got love for you and J.D.R., and we know you guys are going to bounce back elsewhere. But that's not why I called Jim. I caught wind that Hollywood legend Ray Liotta has become Philip Morris and Big Tobacco's public enemy number one after single-handedly lining their pockets for decades, jamming four packs a day into his gullet. But my word, Romy, I don't know if Ray Ray stumbled into a wood chipper or tripped face first in a Hollywood car chase 
uh, seeing onto a spike strip because Henry Hill looks like he's aging in dog years, my man. I mean, and he's got potholes on his face that are deeper than the 110 South. So uh, memo to casting agents, shoot for a younger spokesman, man, because half of these millennials, unfortunately, don't even know who the hell Ray Liotta is. And that's a travesty. War I, Ray Craig, setting sail on a pallet raft at Mother's Beach for the LBC boat parade. Unwar, the man-crushing Manitoba Mimbos. Myler, outro. Good night now!